I sat down with literal yellow post-it notes, and I began to realize that now if you talk about love, you talk about compassion, those two words are very related to each other. I literally was holding a gun at the top of my stairs, aiming at the face of a man who had broken into my house. And so the, the question I often ask people is, what would you do at that moment? Because until you were faced with that moment, I don't think you really know. And I've now been faced with that moment, so I think I sort of know. Coming up, Richard Garriott on The Virtues. This is Binge Edwards. So a lot has been said about the technological innovations in games. And I think today it would be fun to talk about a cultural innovation, which is something you never ever hear about in a review or a magazine or a publication of any kind. But there are such things. And one of the greatest cultural innovations in video games and computer games happened around 1985 with Ultima 4 thanks to Richard Garriott, who developed a system of virtues, secular virtues, that uh, guided not only that game, but the rest of the Ultima series throughout, uh, let's see, five, six, seven, eight, nine games after that. Well, not nine games, five games. Anyway, so uh, we're going to be talking to Richard about that, and I think it's important today in this world where many people are not guided by uh, religious tenets. Uh, they are very secular, but they are lacking an ethic. They're lacking a moral base to help guide them. And I think technology without ethics is pointless. It's like creating a self-driving chainsaw that just sort of cuts down whatever it wants. So I think it's neat to talk to Richard, who made a study of secular virtues. And I think you'll discover, as I have, that they're actually something really universal that can apply far beyond video games. I'm not saying you start a new religion or, you know, you don't have to meditate on this stuff. It's just food for thought. Because, hey, the future can feel like a scary place. You're gonna need a roadmap. And pioneers like Richard Garriott have spent a lot of energy helping us on our journey. So, with that out of the way, let's get on with it. So on this episode of The Culture of Tech, we have a living legend, the ruler of all Britannia, and a pioneer in computer game development, Richard Garriott, aka Lord British of the Ultima series. And Richard is an explorer in the truest sense of the term. I was just reading his book called Explore, Create, and he's explored the depths of the ocean, the wreck of the Titanic, Antarctica, 
He's flown into space like his dad before him, who was a Skylab astronaut. And it just occurred to me, he's even explored the inner spiritual world of mankind itself through a system of virtues he developed for his Ultima series of games. Like the way of the Avatar, that is going to guide our conversation today. Welcome to the Culture of Tech, Richard. It's an honor to have you here. Oh, well, thank you very kindly. You know, I, I enjoyed our uh, our text uh, contacts that we've had prior to today. It's clear we're going to have a, a very nice conversation. Oh, yeah. There's, there's probably way too much we can talk about. Exactly. Let's dig into the origins of the virtue system briefly. By 1985, you had already created three Ultima games by yourself, and they were all the traditional sort of you slay as many monsters as possible and level up, right? Yep, exactly. So what made you go beyond the usual role-playing game experience? Well, I was going to say, yeah, that's literally what kicked this off. Well, and, and, more, and more specifically, the third of the Ultimas that you're just speaking of was the first game that my brother and I published with our own game company, my first game company called Origin. Prior to that, Ultima 1 and Ultima 2 had come out through other companies. The important difference about publishing it yourself is that if anybody has anything to say about that game, you know, if they write a letter to the company, for example, you see that letter yourself. And so it was the first time I saw feedback from players about the games that I had delivered already. And I was fascinated to see kind of what that, what you might consider fan mail said because universally, by the way, and, and to this day, I, you know, I still get uh, you know fan mail to this day, and it has fundamentally the same characteristics uh, across most fan mail. And that's usually one paragraph of, hey, I played your latest game, I really liked it, uh, liked your work, you know, whatever. You know, that might be the first paragraph. Then it is usually multiple pages of, let me tell you, let me give you some ideas as to how to make your game much better, or let me tell you what you did wrong, or here's my idea for a game, and here's some criticism. Uh, you know, and so the remaining length of letter is often critical, if not some deeper analysis of what's going on in the game that they played. And one of the things I noticed about the pattern of those that kind of feedback was how everyone playing, while I imagined most everybody was playing as a hero in their mind's eye, they were a hero here to defeat the bad guy. What, in fact, people were doing was what you and I as gamers recognize as min maxing. They would min max whatever systems existed in the game in order to become powerful enough to win. And what that meant was they were going around, you know, and while they were solving the plot in order to find and collect all the things they needed to face the bad guy, the fastest way to gain money and level up often included slaughtering all the people in the town because they all had a little bit of value and slaughtering my character, Lord British, because it was fun and offered a little bit of value. Uh, stealing from all the shops that they could because that was a, a mechanism that I put into the game that you may or may not be caught by the guards. And I just thought it was cute and funny that if you actually stole something, the guards would chase you out of town. People figured out that, yeah, but you can still do it, and therefore it still has value to them as a player. And so I realized everyone was playing that way. And I was frankly horrified. I did not realize that I was sort of encouraging or creating this best path to success involved being a relatively nefarious character yourself. Mm. And worse yet, the bad guys weren't really doing anything bad, right? You know, the mundane, the great evil wizard, what you're, you're told that he's bad because, you know, the, the intro flick tells you so. But, but he's not doing anything in the game to be worthy of his badness. And, in, and instead, most players were, in fact, doing that. They were slaughtering everybody. They were playing it like Grand Theft Auto or something. 
Oh, exactly right. No, that's exactly right. You know, and um, uh, and so I I sat down. I said, okay, I need to change the game. And I said, you know, well. Well, it's okay, you know. I, I thought it was, I, I thought sort of that I, I had kind of done this to them in a sense by by even allowing you to sneak behind the counter of shops and, and shoplift, and by allowing you to kill an NPC and actually have it, you know, you gain a little bit of skill in combat by doing it. Uh, I thought, okay, I, I sort of created those conditions, and I liked the fact that the world was open enough to allow you to try, you know, test boundaries and you know try things. But I thought, you know, in the real world, you know, we can murder and we can shoplift in the real world. But there's reasons you and I have chosen not to do it, or at least I presume you and I have both chosen not to do it. I'm on the same page there. Yeah. OK, good. good. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know, and there's a long stack of reasons why, you know, and so and I, and I has hit back and I go, OK, well, well, why is it in the real world? I mean, it's not merely that it's illegal, right? It's not merely that you'll go to jail, although that that is a factor. Um, it is also that, you know, if you. You know, if you get it's like the boy who cries wolf, you know, if you get a reputation as a thief in town, then people aren't going to help you when you really need their help. And there's there's a wide variety of moral and social contracts, ethical contracts that, you know, kind of are written within society that, that help keep people on the straight and narrow. It occurs to me that almost any other designer facing a similar situation may have just said, hey, let's have an all powerful God strike him down when he does these bad things. You you took this secular approach of retribution from society. Yeah, well, in fact, well, in fact, well, that's a great setup for the the journey that I went on to solve this problem. So, you know, as soon as I realized, okay, I want to talk about in some way or think about in some way moral philosophy or ethics or you know, skirt around the edges of you know potentially religion or law. You know, how am I even going to do this? Because you know, while I considered myself one of the early pioneers of how to write code and physically make a game. I was absolutely not a student of history, moral philosophy, and, you know, the, the subject matter that I now found myself in need of understanding way better than I did. So how did you go about that process of learning philosophy and the, the things that guided you? To me, the answer was research. This actually, this is the first time I started down a path that I still use to this day on every game that I build, which is to purposely kind of face a new challenge, some important aspect of human, the human condition and civil life uh, and, and explore it first as an explorer, as a, as a, as a researcher to make sure that, that I understand it at a, at a depth that is helpful, uh, that I can make assertions or uh, just, you know, uh, you know, host discussions uh, through gameplay um, around the subject matter uh, that is contemporary and competent. So how did your research translate into the development of the virtues in the Ultima games? The first thing, like if you're going to do a game that forces you to, you know, there has a moral code or ethical parables built into it, you know, there's a places you could start. Like I could start with, say, the Ten Commandments, except that I actually don't believe the Ten Commandments personally. And so I look at that and go like, that doesn't feel to me like the precision of things I would want to promote. So I said, okay, how about I start with the being seduced to the dark side via the seven deadly sins, except that, again, I look at those and go, like, you know, those aren't a pantheon for how to live life or even the, the only things to avoid in life. Uh, so I said, OK, that's not sufficient either. So I said, well, let me go start reading. You know, there's there's books uh, that have been written by the Greeks and the Romans about philosophy. So I started pouring through all these texts about utopian ideals and the ways to live and 
you know, while a lot of these these ancient writings were you know brilliant for their day, I actually they felt hollow from for me from a contemporary, you know, what could you promote contemporaneously as you know a if not truth, at least a uh, you know a solid foundation for modern life, a secular uh, approach to ethics. But interestingly, there was a writer I found uh, by the name of Khalil Gibran, who right behind me, by the way, I have a whole shelf of his writings. Oh yeah, I can see him. Just kidding. And the uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, the thing that I like about Khalil Gibran, a lot of his writings are almost simple little dictionaries of quotes, almost little poetic, simple phrases. Usually, you know, a lot of his uh, some of his books, the ones I particularly was popular with, was you know, a person in the crowd would stand up and. Tell me of honesty. And he would say, oh, honesty is about this, that, and the other thing. Tell me of compassion. He'd say compassion was this, about the other thing. And and it, and it traversed over just a wide train of, of kind of morals, ethics, and, you know, uh, things that inspire people to good or evil. How did you develop and boil down everything you learned into the eight virtues of Ultima? I, I sat down with literal, literal uh, yellow post-it notes and... And I began to realize that, you know, if you talk about love and you talk about compassion, you're talking about two, two, those two words are very related to each other. You know, whereas if you're talking about love versus hatred, you're obviously talking about things that are opposite each other. And if you're talking about jealousy, you're talking about, you know, that has a complex connection to some sort of attraction, yet also some sort of anger or frustration. And so I began to go, okay, I need to put all these things that motivate people to behave one way or another up on the wall and simplify all of this complex thought into patterns to kind of see if I or see if I can find, you know, a foundational set of things to talk about that everybody could recognize as universal. Mm-hmm. And so I began to put positive, you know, motivating words above the line in the center of the room and things that motivated people to do evil or dastardly deeds of one kind or another down below. I began to kind of sort things that were related to each other, close to each other, and almost do one of those like uh, whodunit wall maps with string and, you know, pins and stuff, but with, with con- the concepts of virtues. That's really, really cool. Uh, and I was actually really pleased to find that something really did fall out of that for me. And that was that. I found that there were three principal subjects from which I could sort of at least argue in my own mind that the majority of other things that I put up on the wall existed because of the presence or uh, lack of three, these three major concepts. And those three major concepts were truth and love and courage. And, and, it, and, it, and it seemed to me that almost every other you know, motivation, you know, kind of emotional uh, motivation to do good or, or do evil sprung out mm-hmm. of, you know, you know, telling the truth or telling lies or being loving or being hateful or being courageous or doing something cowardly. And, mm-hmm. and in particular, I found that I could then take one level deeper and I could say instead of just using those three, if I took the eight obvious combinations of those three, I could come up with, use those as the kind of the big principles, I called them. And below that, I came up with eight virtues. And so I came up with honesty that was based out of truth and compassion that was based out of love and valor that came fundamentally from courage. And then I said, you know, truth tempered by love is justice. And I said that because, you know, true justice is not just an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but also recognition of 
if that person is poor, or downtrodden, or uneducated, or starving, which might have motivated them to pick up that piece of bread that didn't belong to them. And so true justice mm. includes that compassion element. Mm. And I said sacrifice, which you know involves both, you know, the for you to be sacrificed, you know, if you're going to sacrifice yourself for your child, for example, by throwing them out of the way when you're about to get hit by a car, that takes a, obviously the love is a portion of it, but so is the courage that, you know, you're, you're, you, you're often facing a danger to rescue someone you love. And so that is this concept of self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I said, you know, I went to honor and I said, you know, if you think about chivalric style honor of, uh, you know, knightly courage and standing for, uh, truth. Uh, that, you know, fighting for what's right might, you know, not just might makes right, but might for the right, uh, you know, that would seem to be this concept of honor. And then for truth, love, and courage, the thing that incorporated all three, I came to the broad concept of of spirituality, but meant in a secular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. This concept of saying that, you know, if you are, you know, if you are reflecting enough to think about what is the impact of my life in the greater society in which we live, you know, am I really just living for myself or is that, or am I really part of uh, this community? And so I, uh, so I care about, you know, who I am as a person or who I've been as a person more than just uh, self-serving. And then the final one uh, I said, you know, if you, the final matching of all three of truth, love and courage is none of the above. And uh, which uh to be honest, somewhat arbitrarily, I said, well, that would be if you didn't have any of those, you meant you meant you were full of pride and uh, pride is not a virtue. And so I used its reciprocal, which was humility. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I did that, I, that you, this, this last little flip actually came uh, as part of the gamification process, we'll all call it, where uh, it was nice to throw a little twist. But, but what was interesting about this whole process is as I stared at the wall I literally, you know, it, it was something relatively magical, shall we say, you know, happening even in my own mind's eye, because I literally could sort, I could at least rationalize how almost any other thing that I'd been putting on the wall for days, you know, could fit into this into this pattern. And so I was feeling really confident that I had found something that was kind of important in a way or had a, a, a truthiness, you know, to it. <laughs> even though it was fiction, I clearly was making this up, but I realized I was making up something that had a resonance with the, the reality of the human experience in a way that I, that I was quite pleased and proud of. It's sort of a, a unified theory of ethics. Yeah, exactly. Have you found yourself living your life by these virtues at all, or is it just a fictional thing? Well, that's what's what's interesting is um, I, I do, you know, wh- you know, whether it's on purpose or not, I do often frame discussions that way. So I, I don't literally, uh, you know, sit back and say, "Does that fit? Does that stand for virtue? Does that stand <laughs> for honesty?" You know, I don't, I don't uh, have it in, in the back of my mind at that level of depth. But it is, you know, when I, <clears throat> you know, when I think about 
reading or writing even children's books or, you know, other things, I often reflect on, um, you, you know, on this, this same foundation. Uh, and I, I compare other thoughts and other works to this foundation. And, and frankly, over the decades, I've been pretty pleased that this foundation is, uh, has truthiness. Well, it's held up really well. And I was, I was wondering if you ever watch politicians today and think, man, he could really stand a visit to the Shrine of Humility, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, absolutely. 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 And of course, as you know, through the subsequent Ultimas, you know, the things I tried to do with it, it was was kind of explore these virtues and explore alternate systems and kind of test them from various angles. And and frankly, for me, what it's done over time is just convinced me more and more how, quote, true, unquote, it is, you know, how mm -hmm. how foundationally solid the concept is. It occurs to me that your system of virtues, as you present them in Ultima, is sort of a bottom up approach. It, co it comes from the individual rather than a top down hierarchical command, this and that dogma kind of thing. Is that a. Uh... That's true. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I kind of planned that way to be on purpose. That's just uh, sort of what I believe I discovered in doing all this philosophical research. Yeah. And uh, which, by the way, I'm so proud and pleased that I did. I mean, I actually think that for me, just as a human, as an individual, having now read, you know, an entire library of moral philosophy texts, um, you know, uh, first of all, I, I just have a better sense of myself. I have a better you know, tolerance and a, not just tolerance, frankly, appreciation for the beauty of, you know, what these philosophers throughout human, you know, written history have you know, put down on paper in order to try to express their understanding and pass on what they believe they have understood. You know, I think it's really been a, you know, it was a, it was a journey through of uh, beauty. You know, for me, one of the real uh, tragedies, though, of it, being a, a secular person myself, is to, is when people now have used that, used those same texts, not as, uh, you know, beautiful poetries of their day, but rather as a rationalization for a variety of less uh, quality behaviors, yeah. shall we say. It seems that there's a tradition to use those guidelines as a way to uh, control people, let's just say, <laughs> and yeah. maybe build empires, build control over a society or something, which is probably part of the natural progression of humanity. But as some people believe, you know, we've hopefully evolved past that at the moment, <laughs> but, you know. Well, you might like to hope so, but you know, it, it's funny. I'm also, as you may know, I'm a collector of, of these uh, mechanical toys called automatons. And the earliest automatons, they, they became really popular in the Victorian period, but the very earliest ones go back to the Greeks and Egyptians where they were used in their religious temples. So we're again back to, you know, some of the early religions. Mm -hmm. But what they would use them for is basically magic tricks to prove the power of their gods. Mm. And so, uh, for example, I have one downstairs called uh, Huron's Horse. And it was a horse, uh, a big statue of a horse that you could behead or you know, put a sword through its neck, and the head would stay attached despite plunging a sword through it. And even after you cut off its head, which remains attached, uh, it could still then drink and a few moments later, urinate. Why they thought that was cool, I don't know, but... It was crazy Greeks. Crazy Greeks, exactly. But they did it to show that the horse was still alive despite its statue state. And if you dissect that, it's an amazingly sophisticated mechanical object created thousands of years ago. Um, yet, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it was sort of used as a... Deception. 
<laughs> a little a piece of deception to uh, to say, look, you know, Huron really was a great hero. Not only was he immortal, but so was his horse. Look right here. Even the model of it is is immortal. That's fascinating. I feel like there's a little bit of connection to today where technology is so advanced that no one person can really understand the entire workings of a single computer. Something like that. It's almost magical. You know, for for the layman, it's it, it blows their minds, but they still use this technology even if they aren't scientific. You know, <laughs> everything that's built on science and and uh, these secular principles, they use it to spread. You know, non scientific. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's a no. I agree. I, that, that that same irony has uh, struck me many times as well. Let me go back and ask you a, a few questions about when you were younger. I've always wondered if you went to church when you were a kid. I did. You know, I uh, uh, when I was in grade school, we went to a multi-denominational church, uh, but had you know Christian services uh, that I grew up in. Uh, in fact, my eldest brother, uh, you know, went on to uh, follow up a religious path. Uh, uh, that the rest of our siblings really did not. Mm -hmm. In high school, I had friends uh, who were churchgoers that I would occasionally go along with. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, probably the closest thing to uh, religious services I've been to in, in, as a, a real adult has been really explorations of art, architecture, or history. Uh, and so I still have the same appreciation I have for religious tradition. For me, I separate the 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 activities of uh, religious, religious institutions and churches into a couple of categories. You know, one is celebrations of the rhythms of life, births, coming of age, marriages, deaths, and other kinds of transitions. Uh, and communities getting to celebrate those, I think is obviously really important. I actually think it's, it's, and it's an important bond of a community. And so I, I very much support that and enjoy participating in those, in those kinds of activities. And, uh, I also very much support and endorse people getting together regularly to discuss, you know, moral philosophy and tradition. And and you know, and while you know, traditionally that's uh, at least in the United States done here on you know Sundays at a place called a church or a synagogue. Um, you know, uh, I don't think that is the only place to get that sort of, of teaching. But in the United States, we don't really, I don't think, do a particularly good job of teaching ethics in school. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I think that's one of the reasons people need to lean on religious institutions more heavily is, is because we, we, we have, uh, for whatever reason, either purged it or just don't do it very successfully in our school. It seems like we've outsourced the study of ethics to churches and sort of left it at that. Yeah, perhaps so. I, I think that's, uh, if that's true, I think that's unfortunate, but I, I, I can't really argue with that to be sure. Let me mention another part I really like, though, too, which is community outreach. I mean, a lot of organized religions do a phenomenally good job of, of uh, you know, helping the homeless or helping the poor or the sick or the weak or, you know, really you know, teaching the importance of community involvement and, and organizing that, which I think is also a fantastic uh, use of their time, space, attitude and teachings. In my mind, all too often, though, we get to the that would be my fourth category. Um, which is they, uh, it becomes an end of itself 
Uh, a lot of money, I think, goes to perpetuate the existence of the organization and, uh, and, 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 and often kind of either harbor secrets or uh, you know, less great works of the organization, so we say list enemies or something. It, it, exactly. And so, uh, the, uh, yeah, so I, so I, anyway, so I think there are some difficulties or problems right now with that, that I think sprang from a very particular moment in time, come to think of it, uh, which actually goes to, again, to this, this ethical, uh, research that I had been doing, which is, you know, if you go prior to the 14th century or so prior, you know, if you look at early history, the word philosophy and the word science and the word religion all basically meant the same thing. They, there really was just one search for truth, and that search for truth, in, you know, included early versions of the scientific process or the pre-scientific process. Basically, saying, "Hey, rocks fall, and you know, things break, and when you hit them against each other, and you know, uh, some things about the natural world that were you could be written down and say, yep, that's true." Um, but then also to use lots of flights of fancy, like, you know, the sun is or isn't a God and the moon is or isn't a God and things that are in lightning is or isn't a God. You know, those were things that were written down early on uh, to try to make sense of the world. And so religion, philosophy, and science were the same thing. And even if you go all the way up through, you know, the building of, uh, the pyramids, both in, uh, middle America and Egypt, where these, these cultures were extraordinarily good at mathematics and could predict seasons, which means you can plant and harvest at the right time. Uh, they could do, you know, some aspects of weather predict climate, at least prediction with those same kind of models. You look at Stonehenge up in England, again, a great star chart and a way to predict a lot of the changes that suddenly move and become, and it's, it's both part of their religion but also really is a piece of science that's being slowly eked out. And, and so while religion and science were on an identical path, and while they were happy to ensure that when a new scientific discovery was found, they would replace the old mysticism and speculation with the new fact that they had discovered, I, you know, I think that was a great journey for humanity. It's actually been the last couple hundred years where there's been this fork where for many religions, they've, they've, uh, they now seem to have said, science is no longer going to be the facts we follow when it disagrees with this piece of writing that somebody wrote down sometime in the past when people didn't know much. Uh, if those are contradictory, we're gonna favor the writing over evidence. You know what happened? The printing press, that's what created that. If someone could point to a printed book that was widely distributed to, to contradict the, the evolving ideas of a church, like a central authority, then that's probably what caused that. I mean, that caused the Reformation, probably, right? I, I agree. That's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about that as the marker in time. I was always using you know, uh, the uh, Copernican uh, uh, star systems, but we're talking about a pretty similar point in time. So I'll, I'll actually get back and... You're giving me a subject matter to go research now as to when this turn exactly happened relative to uh, the printing press and study of the movement of the planets. I've been thinking about this a lot because I feel like we're we're at another one of those junctures in humanity and civilization where it's like the printing press. This, the, the social media and the connectedness of everyone is letting us all see each other's thoughts like in the most raw, basic way uh, that contradicts what we've been taught prior Prior to that, and I, my what I say is consensus is an illusion caused by low bandwidth. <laughs> so, 
right. today, today uh, we're finding our consensus dissolve before our eyes and it's causing chaos politically and all kinds of things like that. And I feel like the printing press was sort of the first step in that process a very long time ago and things had to shake down. And then there were other sort of mass media revolutions that, that created new cultural um, shakedowns and things. But that's sort of getting into another topic. But no, but I but I agree with you. You know, and in fact, uh, you know, I, I think we're seeing it you know, come up right now with some of the unfortunate uh, revelations about uh, the behavior of males towards women. You know, in you know across our society right now, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that seems to you know it clearly transcends party. It clearly transcends um, uh, uh, media empires. I mean, or, or, or job types. And yet, you know, some of these things where you would you would like to believe that almost everyone, when something when a revelation comes out or an accusation is made, what you know, which again, depending on how you want to shade it, you can call it an accusation or a revelation, depending on how how what how much trust you put in it. But it, you know, but it seems like almost everybody should say, well, you know, that that's an accusation that would be understandably difficult for somebody to have made, and so therefore, it's understandable that it would be delayed. It's also understandable that timing, you know. Uh, could be political or timing could be that now they feel more emboldened because so many other people are you know coming out against things. Uh, and, you know, and if it's only one person making a complaint, then, you know, maybe I, you know, uh, should, you know, wait to hear more. And if it's, you know, two dozen unrelated people, you know, coming out uh, one after another, after another, after another, you know, then maybe I should, you know, uh, you know probably be a little more concerned or alarmed. But I feel like what's going on right now with that issue is, there's been these cultural norms about what was acceptable for men to do, or at least what was tolerated in a society. And um, it's meeting this new culture online, these new emboldened voices. And I think, I feel like it's the river meeting the ocean where they just, they're two different types of water and there's some turbulence, <laughs> you know? No, that's a great metaphor. I like that. I like that metaphor. Not many people walk around uh, with an alter ego like you have with Lord British. And I, I'll tell you a little story about me first to frame this question, which is I grew up BBSing as a kid. I started when I was 11. I ran a BBS. I was very young, like the youngest sysop in the, the area. And um, I was very trusting and naive. And a lot of older kids took advantage of my trust and, and essentially ruined my BBS and gave me a virus and all this stuff. And after that, I crafted a persona, uh, someone who was older than me, like 30 years old, and I kept it for years. And I was wondering if this Lord British thing was any sort of emotional refuge for you or a, a retreat from ordinary life. Did it ever feel that way, this alter ego of yours? Well, it's interesting because it, there's been sort of phases of, of my life. We'll have to talk about that, which is, you know, in the beginning... Like you, you know, there was a time where having a pseudonym wasn't, didn't, or at least didn't 
feel very odd. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, in fact, back when I had the nickname Lord British, you know, one of the other early origin authors was Chuckles, Chuck Boucher, you know, as Chuckles. A lot of the very earliest game developers had pseudonyms. All the hackers who were hacking our stuff all had pseudonyms. And so it didn't, it didn't seem abnormal at all. What happened, however, was when pretty quickly games evolved from being a one-person effort to being a team effort. And so when it was a one-person effort, it was common to see someone's pseudonym as the that they would use on the game box, just because you know they often were doing it. They were often making the game for themselves or for their friends. Uh, and so you know, and in, like in my case, you know, having Lord British as a character was just kind of cute and fun. And I included, you know, when I included my friends, I included their role-playing characters' names. In fact. All my college buddies are the main characters of Ultima. They're pseudonyms, you know. Yeah. Uh, Yolo is a guy named uh, David Watson who makes crossbows, and in Ultima he makes crossbows. And you know, uh, Greg Dykes is known in the game as Dupre, the the Knight of Honor. And uh, you know, I could go. Uh, Mariah is uh, Michelle Cadell, who was my assistant for thirty years. You know, and but also hmm. would go out and do SCA medieval recreation with me on the weekends. And so you know, all these all these sort of uh, uh, that 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 deeply entwining of your D and D character persona and your uh, online persona and your game maker persona that was common in those first five to ten years. However, once you became once you started to be having teams, uh, not only did we start shifting everybody back to their real name, but frankly, a lot of big publishers and I think EA shows this the, showed this the most just began to remove the names of the developers altogether. Mm. Uh, if you look at Electronic Arts first ad it included all their game developers on the front cover looking as cool as they could um but with their names underneath you know my one of my mentors at the time a guy named bill budge was you know prominent amongst them and uh and it was meant to say making games is now cool we've got the best artists in the business the best developers in the business you should come come be a part of ea because we're gonna make you famous kid yeah what EA then learned is that, well, one, it was no longer a solo effort pretty quickly, but also to the degree they made the person famous and the person left, they lost that value. And so it actually works against the company to create value in the employee's name. And so, uh, but, but I had gotten started early enough to where my, you know, my name is actually now used as part of the sales tool on the box just because I've been doing it for so long and I'm reasonably well-known and especially with the Lord British moniker. That's amazing. I interviewed Trip Hawkins uh, years ago, and we talked about that, the highlighting star designers and things. And I actually didn't think about how the transition between individual auteurs and teams would impact that marketing tool. That's fascinating. I was wondering about the origin of those ethical dilemmas at the beginning of the Ultima, where you, you I'll, I'll read one that I quoted so the audience knows what I'm talking about. Entrusted to deliver an uncounted purse of gold, thou dost meet a poor beggar. Dost thou, A, deliver the gold honestly, knowing the trust in thee was well placed, or B, show compassion and give the beggar a coin, knowing it won't be missed. Did you write all those yourself, and how did you get that idea? Yeah, I did, and this actually comes back from when when I sat down. I said, "Okay, I didn't want you to build your character by just either rolling dice randomly, in which case 
if you roll random dice to start a character, which you do in a lot of games, people just roll and roll and roll until they get, uh, you know, lucky to have a whole bunch of high numbers because you want them to all be as good as you can. I also didn't want you to just have sliders that you could move to a finite maximum because that seemed less more like I was customizing the character to be who you were. And now I was on this path to create your avatar. And so in my mind, this was meant to be you. And I wanted to engage you with uh, you know, a Q&A process to, uh, to, to, to kind of determine who, who you were as a person and then maybe design a character uh, that was... Uh, it's like a personality test almost, right? Like a personality test. Well, in fact, it was one of my brothers told me the story that he had heard in a psychology class. There's five people in this little story, all based on Popeye universe in this case. Olive oil lives across a river from Popeye that she can't swim across or she'll be killed. She, there's only two people with boats on her side of the river. Uh, she goes to Brutus and says, hey, will you take me across? He said, sure, but only if you'll sleep with me. She says, no. She goes to uh, Wimpy, says, will you take me? And he goes, no, 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 I'm not getting involved at all, so I'm not taking you, period. Uh, she eventually says, well, I'm, the only other way to go is with Brutus. So she sleeps with him. He takes her across. She goes, Popeye, I finally made it over here to see you. I love you. I have to tell you, I confess to you, I had to sleep with Brutus to get over here. He goes, you slept with him. I don't want to see you anymore, so go away. She's, of course, tragically hurt. She tells the little baby, uh, whose name I forget, we'll call him Bob, tells the kid, and the kid gets pissed off and goes and, and, and beats up Popeye. Yeah. And so, and he said, that the psychology question here is, who did the best thing and who did the worst thing in that story? And it's interesting if you ask people, you know, a lot of women might say, oh, olive oil, she's you know terrible that she you know, would give in to, to do that. And a lot of other people would go, no, no, Popeye for being such an idiot and, you know, saying, look, it's the only way she could get across. And some people go, oh, the baby is the only one that did something good. He actually beat up somebody for doing something stupid, you know, or bad. And, and what I found was, you know, it was an interesting personality profile just to see that. That was too long a story for me to tell. And so what I did is, I, and especially to make one up around eight virtues and let you order them. And so I broke it down and I said, you know, if you start with eight options and I want to I want to build a profile as to what's more important to you, is it honesty or compassion or valor more important to you? I randomly paired them off like a NBA bracket and I wrote stories to contrast two together. Like the one you just talked about was honesty versus compassion. And I wrote and rewrote those stories or those little questions and I tested them on people who about half the people I tested I would ask them to just order the eight virtues in advance and then take the test. Others, I would say, take this test and then order these eight virtues to because there was you had to bias one by the other. Hmm. And I did it until I got to a reasonably good matchup to where that if you did let people freely select, they'd end up with approximately the same order they went through as the psychological test. Wow. And so I think it actually does a pretty darn good job of of sussing out from you, you know, what kind of person you are. Is are you a person who really thinks that Honesty is the most important thing beyond, you know, do you believe the beggar who's starving to death really shouldn't get the bread? Or, you know, is yeah. is it okay to, you know, pilfer a loaf of bread if you're otherwise going to die? I find it fascinating that you've, you've, you've presented it in such a way where there's no wrong answer. It's not like you get punished for picking one or the other. It just determines your traits of your, your character or reflects your personality in this case. Exactly. There's a story in your book about how you're facing an intruder in your house that's really gripping and with a gun. You're you're on a stairway and you tried to warn him off, but he didn't budge. And I was thinking, I wonder if he had the ethical style dilemma, like oh, you I... uphold the honor of your household and shoot him, knowing that he may not be just, or show compassion and let him escape. 
Did that ever enter your mind? I, I assure you, I had no, uh, I had no deep thinking going on at that moment whatsoever. This was a completely fight or flight moment. And as you know from reading the book, I, I find it an interesting question to ask others to find out what they think they would do in the same circumstance. And uh, you know, and and to set it up for the listeners, you know, I was, I literally was holding a gun at the top of my stairs, aiming at the face of a man who had broken into my house and had remained in my house for ten minutes while the police were arriving, had been, you know, rummaging around on the lower floor before he started coming upstairs, and I had him at gunpoint saying, "Stop or I'll shoot." And after five minutes, he decides to no longer stop, and it's not clear what he's now going to go do next. But he's not charging up the stairs at me, or at least that's not my impression. But he's also definitely not, he's no longer going to stand by my commands. And the police had already told me, this guy's in your house. If you feel threatened, you shoot him. And so the, the question I often ask people is, what would you do at that moment? Because until you were faced with that moment, I don't think you really know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I've now been faced with that moment, so I think I sort of know. But, uh, but I didn't expect it, so I didn't know before that moment. And in that case, I believe what went through this fraction of a second of my mind was it's important that he knows I'm willing to shoot this gun. On the other hand, I really don't want to kill somebody. And so I moved the barrel over a few inches, which means I still could have killed him. And I put a bullet the hole through my house. And by the way, it still didn't phase him. He still went down and started crunching around the rest of my house. So and before the police came and arrested him, it's an interesting moment to realize that, you know, you've fired at someone. It is a, you know, it, that is a life altering moment. Uh, to be faced with that decision. And, and think about that. I, I, I don't even have to kill anybody. I mean, think about that compared to like a soldier who's had to really go into combat and all these other things. I mean, it just I have just now such empathy for people who've gone through obviously much more serious threats than I did. Yeah. So which stat did you bump up by making that choice? Is it intelligence? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Which know. one of the virtues did you pick there? I don't know. Well, it was definitely some compassion because I didn't kill him. So um, let's get into the avatar here. I was fascinated by this idea of avatar as projection of yourself into the world. I find parallels with, say, Jesus or, you know, they say Vishnu in the Hindu faith. And uh, did you get that idea from uh, Hinduism? Hinduism, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, in fact, it, it, when I was doing my moral and uh, ethical research and I was reading these Hindu texts, and I came across this concept of the word avatar. And they were, in this case, uh, talking about how Vishnu might occasionally come down to Earth in human form and run around as Vishnu's avatar. And, and what I liked about that concept is that, and, and the reason why I was struggling, even as I was trying to put kind of morality and, and ethics more specifically into games, I realized already that most people when they played games, or a lot of people when they played games, weren't pretending to be themselves. It was their alter ego. 
So on Earth, they might be a perfectly nice you know, computer nerd, but they like to play an evil wizard when they played in a role-playing game. That was their, they, they just like to role-play as an evil wizard. And if you were playing a role-playing game called Conan the Barbarian, you would expect the player to act like Conan the Barbarian. And you would be you should succeed or fail based on how well you embodied the role of Conan. Would be perfectly reasonable. But in this case, I specifically wanted it to be you. I wanted you to be responsible for, you know, if you did or did not give that gold to the beggar. I want you to be responsible if you killed off all the NPCs in my town or if you stole from all my shops. I, I didn't want you to say, ha, that was just my evil counterpart. No, no, it's you. It's you, the earth human you. And so not only did I immediately embrace this concept of an avatar, but I uh, then created fiction in the game about how you, this person on earth, found your way out of the woods, you discovered a circle of stones, a moon gate opens up, and voila, you transport to my world. And, and even if you might change physically by, you know, now I'm, a, now I'm a bulking hero that can swing a big sword and carry a big shield instead of my skinny little computer nerd, that physical change is okay, but it's your spirit, it's your essence, it's your soul to the degree that you have one in that character. It's your avatar. Yeah, that's incredible. That's the first use of avatar in you know uh, modern context. There's another guy who thinks he coined the term avatar. His name is uh, was it Chip Morningstar or Randy Farmer? The people who did Habitat. Yes. So the the case they've made is that while they were internally working on Habitat, so Habitat was launched after Ultima Four was launched, but they've used the logic of yeah, but we were developing Habitat before it was launched, and we were already using the word avatar. To which I respond. Well, yes, but I was developing Ultima 4 before I released Ultima 4, and I was already using the word avatar. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. so, so I beat them on concept and beat them on on, on publishing, despite their uh, claims uh, that they were using it before I launched, which might have been true that they were using it before I launched, but they weren't launched before I was launched, and, and I was using it before they were even using it, if you follow my check. Yeah, I get it. Well, did you ever think about the Avatar thing? Did you? Did it make you think? Well, what if, what if the universe is a a game or a computer, and God is projecting Himself into characters or people? I mean, did that ever? Did you ever make that connection, or a, a or a supernatural being beyond the universe was doing that? You know, of course, it's crossed my mind. But you know, but by the way, there's a million fictional truths that you could come up with. That is one thing you could make up that would be hard to disprove. You know, all, there's all kinds of things you can make up that would be difficult to disprove. But in my mind, there's no reason to, you know, latch on to any of those until there's some evidence to show that they would be, you know, more more likely than the reality in which we find ourselves. All right. Well, I really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much for doing this and talking to me. My pleasure. And uh, if you want to chat again in the future, uh, you know, I've enjoyed uh, digging into philosophical issues, which I think are important in games these days. So uh, happy to come back sometime and talk again. Awesome. Okay. Talk to you later. Sure enough. Bye-bye. He grew up in a brave new
Well, that was a blast. I'd like to thank Richard Garriott for doing this because there is probably nobody cooler you can talk about moral philosophy with than Lord British himself. So thanks for listening. If you want to support this show uh, right now, go to patreon.com slash Edwards and you can donate. Eventually, I will set up a special Patreon for the culture of tech. Or you can send me some Bitcoin, man. Somehow, with a bunch of numbers and letters and stuff, it's like 300 characters long. But, you know, just if you if you have Bitcoin, that's all right. You can, get, you can send me some. Just uh, ask me on Twitter. Anyway, uh, thanks again, and I'll see you next time.